pastor in Canada is openly anti-theistic in her teaching, totally rejecting the Trinity and claiming to liberate the church by removing the burden of God. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos. We're going to have a serious conversation about this, and this is a program where we do believe in the Trinity and we do want to lead people to Christ. And this is produced by Clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Allegria. So, like Pastor Dylan said, we're going to have a serious conversation of a discussion. Um, and actually, we got an email from one of our viewers um, regarding questions about this atheist pastor in Canada. But before we get to that, we're going to do some interesting news. Yes, and of course, we like to have interesting, fun news. Again, there should be joy in the world. God does not want us to just all be drab, sanctified, and petrified people who, who sit around looking like gargoyles because we are that miserable. If we look like gargoyles, we should also be the gargoyles who grin because we are Christian. <laughs> um, so we do like to have our, our fun with the play on the, the phrase holiness today. We are going to open up with some fun articles. We're going to talk about Ford patenting the concept of airing out your car. We're going to talk about a soccer team faking a death. You know, soccer teams are notorious for faking injuries. But first, some interesting mosaics that were found depicting biblical events. Now, this is a really, really interesting find. And we've got some images here for those of you who are, are watching the podcast and not just listening to us. And so basically, throughout the history of the people of God, there's always been this need to, to portray what God has been doing for his people through art. And mosaics are a really, really fascinating way of depicting beautiful things. You see things like icons later in the church, but when you get really ancient, you see these mosaics where people have come together to craft the, the stories which have been handed down to them and try to portray that in an artistic form. And mind you, from a world where there wasn't a lot of artistic things to view. So it's always interesting to see how people of old conceptualized the different things that happen in the kingdom of God. And so we have a slideshow of some newly discovered, and they were found in an old synagogue, some newly discovered um, mosaics. And this is from National Geographic. And Anthony is going to share this slideshow, and he's going to describe some of the images that you see here. The prophet Jonah's feet emerged from the giant fish that swallowed him. In an exaggeration of the story, additional fish swallowed the fish that's consuming the prophet. So basically, and Amanda pointed this out, you've got a fish, eating a fish, eating a fish, eating a prophet, <laughs> eating a prophet, yeah. Men quarry stone to build the Tower of Babel. The tools and techniques depicted offer a unique look into ancient construction techniques. A detail of the 1600-year-old synagogue mosaic featuring from the left the Twelve Signs of the Zodiac, Jonah Swallowed by a Fish, and the Building of the Tower of Babel. This scene may depict Alexander the Great in military uniform meeting with the High Priest of Jerusalem. Now that's something I think is really interesting in telling both of not only the Jewish history, but also where the people of God fit in the context of the world. They actually have in their mosaic Alexander the Great meeting the High Priest. Sort of an interesting contrast. War elephants decorate a 1,600-year-old scene that may depict Alexander the Great as well. 
This is really interesting, especially since next week is uh, Hanukkah, and part of that story is Alexander the Great did allow for some religious freedom, um, but the leaders after him did not, and they would start the Maccabean Revolt, uh, which is part of the celebration of Hanukkah. And one of the stories is that the Maccabees did fight against an army of elephants. So yeah, like uh, Pastor Dylan was saying, this is really interesting to see the people of God within a historical context. And this mosaic is found in a synagogue that is dated to the 5th century, and archaeologists have been working on uncovering this since about 2012, and they've kind of got to this point where they can come out and show us these images, and we're really grateful for that. So if you want to check out more of this, it's on National Geographic, and it's by it's an article by Kristen Rami, and it's called Man-Eating Fish, Tower of Babel Revealed on Ancient Mosaic, and we'll put a link to that in our description. So there is that. That's a lot of fun. Next up in interesting news, and now we'll actually get to the unholiness um, <laughs> side of things. Again, there's always depravity. I've come to the point where I realize the world is a bit like Mount Everest. Everything is total depravity except at the top. That's where you get entire sanctifications. It's up there towards the top. There's a moment where you can say you're at the top of the mountain, though, yes, you could go higher. You can get to the exact point of the mountain, and then there are times when you're just generally at the top. Entire sanctification is sort of that moment where you're there up at the top of the mountain. Yeah, you can get a little higher, but the rest of it's all depravity, and people are always doing things which are insane. So let's talk about soccer now. <laughs> um, this might be considered a football club where it's at in its a local um, language there in Ireland, which is, of course, English. But those of us in America, we call it soccer. And, of course, many of you who observe soccer, you know that there is a bit of a underlying idea that soccer players are always faking injuries. They're being a bit dramatic. And maybe there's a little bit truth to that because an entire soccer team in Ireland decided they were going to fake a player's death. And this, of course, ultimately got busted because the player did not die. And so there's totally some depravity here. But let me share this with you. So the, the Ballybrack Football Club falsely told officials with the Leinster Senior Football League that one of its players had died in a tragic accident on Thursday night. The league subsequently postponed the Ballybrack's game on Saturday and held a moment of silence for the player and all of the other games on that weekend. So basically what happened, they didn't want to play this game, and it's hard to get out of a game, so they faked the death of one of their players, and they were able to get the game postponed, so I guess they kind of succeeded in this, though they totally got busted because some people did a minor amount of investigating and found out that the player in question actually had just gone back to Spain, which is where he was from. And we have in meme depicting this. Um, people are always trying to get away with their depraved things, and I think this best captures it. It's the Scooby-Doo meme where Fred is coming to unveil who's behind the mask, and of course, you pull away the Ballybrack Football Club, and it's the Ballybrack Football Club. We didn't get an exact statement from them, um, but we did get the general sentiment that they were thinking, we could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for me. Um, they, they kind of stepped all over themselves there. And the article we were reading with you is from USA Today, and we'll put a link in there for you. Amanda, what is the response to this? This is the depraved thing. How do we move people up the mountain, um, away from depravity and towards sanctification? What is the holiness takeaway from this? Well, I think um, if we really make, I guess, a, a nice sermon illustration out of this is that we are sometimes called to do uncomfortable and difficult things, not just because... That not within its own self, not just to be difficult or uncomfortable, but sometimes we are moved into places that, like that, and we should just do them instead of trying to contrive ways to get out of them, because actually by doing that, we cause more harm to ourselves and others than if we actually just did it. And I think it's funny um, 
that they did this and, and sometimes in responding to these stories i don't know whether or not to be like the answer to this is like if you're going to be depraved you might as well do it well um, <laughs> and, and, and contrive of a better plot um which is not what i'm endorsing at all but it, that does seem to be the knee-jerk reaction what? be like make a better plan what if you're were they do thinking this. was going to happen like the week after that well now that you postpone the game we can come play again and by the way he's back from the dead like, right and like what was a long-term strategy he went yeah he went back to spain which is also uh, a country that is heavily involved in, in soccer or football um whatever you want to call it it's not like he like went to a private island somewhere and was never going to be seen again like he's you know he was still part of the world so yeah i don't know but i guess if we really want to move to holiness not further depravity um just just do what needs to get done just play the game <laughs> yeah all right so next up we have an article um regarding ford motor company my father my grandfather they worked for ford motor company a lot of my family are ford people I mean, we actually just spent the last several weeks working on a, a Ford turbo diesel truck. But recently, Ford has a new patent out, and it's one that's going to surprise us all. You see, Ford has realized, they looked at the world and they say, you know, some people like the new car smell, some people don't. What if we patent something that nobody would expect us to patent? Airing out your car. And this really is a place where you can't tell if it's satire or real, and I promise you, this one is real. Last time we were looking at the pigeon, and the pigeon was not actually voted into office, though it is a satirical thing because it's believable in this day and age. Today we're talking about something, and I promise you, this is real. So buyers in the Chinese market, they don't like the new car smell when they buy a car. And Ford Motor Company decided they wanted to do something about this to help their cars have a bigger appeal in China. And basically what it amounts to is while the car is still in Ford's custody, while they're still assembling it and wrapping things up, they turn on the engine, roll down the windows, and crank up the heat. And they actually filed a patent on this one saying that you turn on the engine, roll down the windows, and turn up the heat. And they, they actually have a patent filed for airing out your car. And the patent, if you go and read it, it's actually pretty much a description of airing out your car. And I, I don't know how they get away with this. This one just shocks me. Um, we, we have a meme there for you as well. Uh, the used car salesman meme that says, slaps roof. You can air out this bad boy so much with this new patent. <laughs> so Amanda, your thoughts on this? Total depravity. Does one need a patent to air out their car? What are our thoughts on this? No, I don't think so. And I'm not even sure what the answer to this. I, I'm not sure if it's Ford being awfully haughty and thinking uh, that they have invented reinvented the wheel um or or what is going on here but yes um no i don't think you need and it, yeah and you don't need instructions people figure this out all on their own but maybe we're becoming too dependent on others to do things for us i'm not sure what's going on here to even give an answer but yeah yeah no no comment there all right well we're going to move on to our serious conversation because there is a real issue in the world that needs to be talked about there was a pastor in canada who is openly she describes herself as being atheistic, but it's really more antitheist because she's trying to edit out the concept of God. And I think that's a breaking of cause and effects relationships. You see a lot of people who want the effects and the consequences of the gospel, but they don't want the gospel to be the cause of those things. It's sort of a breakdown of, of very fundamental principles. We'll be back to talk about that after this break. All right, and coming back together, we're going to be talking about a minister 
Um, not of the gospel, though she has a position at a church in Canada where she rejects the Trinity and the denomination has allowed her to keep her position. And now this came after a while. They've been trying to get this lady out. There have been people calling for a heresy trial. There are people who took a vote in a committee saying she was unfit to be there. But ultimately, they decided to let her stay. Now, this conversation came up. I was invited to be on Chris Ford's podcast, The Gen Y Conservative. And he wanted me to, to talk about this. I'll put, see if I can put a link to that conversation before because I don't want us to spend too much time going into the details of this. But one of the, the listeners we have sent me a list of questions that they, she wanted me to answer in regards to this pastor. In other words, she had a list of questions and thoughts and comments that she would like to send to that pastor, but we're unable to do that. So we thought we would answer these ourselves in order to try to have a, a healthy conversation about this. Now, the email I received... Um, opened up with this statement. Let me just share you a little bit to get your mind going in this train of thought. Again, this is stuff currently going on in Canada. The name of the denomination is the United Church of Canada. It's a Protestant church. It's a collection of things such as the, the United Methodist Church and a few others. They kind of merged together to have a new denomination. And there's a pastor who doesn't believe in the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, and she's editing these things out, and they've decided to let her stay. So someone sent us an email saying, speaking of that preacher that has taken the morals and wisdoms of the ones before us from her preaching and making her own opinion, she is removing the most important ingredient of the teaching. And the question I have of her is this, is this plagiarism? Now, I actually like that train of thought. What do you think about that train of thought, Amanda? Well, yeah, I think there's something to it because she is trying to repackage things. It's like when you're in grade school and you first learn about plagiarism, they're like, okay, you can't just change one or two words and then say it's your own thought. You have to, you know, really rewrite it and you go through all those steps and then learn how to cite things and it's super annoying. But but yeah, there's there's kind of a, a logic to this. This, is, this almost is plagiarism in the fact that she claims it's, it's Christian. She claims that she's come up with this completely on her own um, and she's just omitted some things. But it almost moves then beyond plagiarism because she's not just omitted some things, a word or two. She's really omitted the main foundation of it. Yeah, and I really like this train of thought. I don't think it fits the legal definition of plagiarism or something <laughs> like that, but I do like this train of thought because I think you're onto something. Next, and this is the opening statement. We'll get to the questions in a moment. Well, there was a question in the opening <laughs> statement. Um, it, it says here, I believe it's exactly the same thing as removing, as removing God, removing morals, removes justice, removes his order. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. We can all agree to that. She is not changing or denying our history. She is just omitting the most important ingredient. Um, I can't speak for her. She may be denying or changing our history. I, I don't know, but she's definitely omitting a, a part of the ingredient here. Um, continuing in the email's opening statement says, an example I have is like making chocolate chip cookies and removing the chocolate chips and all the ingredients having them just the same, but removing what makes them so good and desirable. The cookies are still edible, but they're not chocolate chip cookies. And so you've been lied to if you were to purchase a box of chocolate chip cookies that were made without the chocolate chips. And I think, I think that's also a good train of thought. And then the email's opening statement ends with saying that she's going to be in prayer for this lady in this whole situation. So what we're going to do now, and normally we play Hot Not or Sanctified at the end of our program, what we're going to have in lieu of that today is Anthony is going to read these questions that were sent to us by email in regards to the atheistic pastor in Canada. Again, I think the more appropriate term is to say that she is anti-theistic because she's actively trying to remove God. It's not just that she says she's without God. She is actively opposing it and trying to root God out. I want us to answer these questions. 
we're not answering them as if we are her. We are just giving a theological response to these questions. So, Anthony, if you would start with question number one. What changed in your heart? What has failed you? And what has made you so angry with God? I think this is a good opening question. From my experience, a lot of times we look at people and they they have a lot of resent towards the church. They may have a resent towards um, even systems of government and things of that nature. And it, it usually actually does boil down to some basic sin such as resent. I can't answer for anything she has going on in her life. But from my experience, a lot of times when people have some sort of animosity that moves them to take out something this catastrophically important, like removing God from church, or they them hating the faith, there usually actually is some basic sin that is at the heart of that. Amanda, what are your thoughts? Well, I think um, in, in this question, um, I've been reading through the book of, of Job, and it's been several weeks I've been reading through, and I'm still stuck kind of in that dense middle part where all the, the Hebrew poetry is going on. But there's this interesting conversation where Job is asking and doubting about God, and I think that's something we all go through at some point in our lives. And sometimes there is a, kind of a, a great crisis that happens that sparks it. Sometimes it's not. Um, and so what I've read of this article, it doesn't seem like she's had a great crisis, um, like something bad happening to her or, or the passing of a loved one, nothing like that. But just kind of almost mildly, she, she's um, decided that God doesn't exist. And I, I think we have to temper that. Like, I think it's okay to, to talk to God and be angry at God and even question God and what what is God doing. But ultimately, even those questions have to rest in a place of faith. And that's how the basically the book of Job ends is with God saying, I'm, I'm in charge. I created the universe. I know what's going on. You have to trust me. And even if you don't get it. And I think where this could have been a great learning opportunity, both for this minister and her congregation to say, yes, we've doubted. We've, we've fought. We've struggled. We, we don't understand, but we're going to trust. Instead, she's gone the other way and said, well, we're just going to throw it out. And and I think that's the, the great heresy of this situation then is this could have been an excellent opportunity for the people of God to, to truly wrestle and to find their faith stronger. And instead she has created an environment that has basically left these people faithless. All right. So before we go on to the next question, I want to point a few things out. One, to Amanda's point, it is good to to come to the theological table in a, in a good framework and say, I have questions, but I want answers to those questions. I'm not just going to reject everything. Behind me right now, there's a poster, and yes, it's an X-Files reference, as well as being altered a little bit to also be a reference to the father who brings his demon-possessed child to Jesus. And it says, I believe, help my unbelief. That, that's actually a pretty good, healthy theological statement to make. Say, I believe, but help my unbelief. What's not a good statement to say is, I believe... But I don't actually believe, but I want the consequences of believing. And that's really what I think this lady is doing. She wants the effects of the gospel, but she doesn't want the gospel to be the cause of them. It's sort of like her saying, I believe in the results of the church, because obviously she's still there in the church. But at the same time, she absolutely hates the idea of of God being the instrumental force there. And when we get done with this conversation, I may let Amanda to have her hypothesis as one of the, the root sins in this. I may go ahead and throw mine out there. I think idolatry is probably the the largest thing going on here. And just to give everybody a little bit more backstory on this, this lady made the statement to the Canadian press, and her name is Vosper, is her last name. And she said, it's going to be wonderful. We'll be out from underneath this heavy cloud. Now we'll really be able to fly. Amanda, what do you think about that statement? Well, I think what confuses me is... 
what does she think she's going to gain from the church? What what fulfillment is she finding by staying in the church that is not founded on the foundation of Christ? That's like, she's saying we can fly further now. That's like getting in an airplane with no wings. Like, where do you think you're going? Yeah. Nowhere. That's the answer to that question, basically. And, and so, and I know that there's a lot of, there's atheist churches that are out now, um, and they call themselves that. Basically, every Sunday they gather, they sing nice songs, they have usually some kind of intellectual speaker that talks on a topic, and then they leave. And it, I think people are craving community. But ultimately, that community is going to fail. You're not going to get anything out of it, you may, maybe for a little while, but it's going to fail. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, where is she flying to? Like, I, I just, yeah. there's no, this makes no sense to me. Yeah, and I'm shocked at this situation, but I'm not that shocked. I'm really not that shocked at all. The only thing that really shocks me about this situation is that what she is doing still wears the brand of Christianity. I know Anthony's burning us up to get the next question, but just a few more moments on this because we'll get some of our early thoughts out and then we'll continue on with the questions in the email. Um, I'm shocked, but I'm not shocked because people, we really are wired to think a certain way. This is just undeniably true. People need a moral framework to think with. To Amanda's reference earlier, if you're going to be getting on an airplane, you got to have wings. We had this really weird cultural lie sold to us, and especially to our generation when we were younger, that if you're open-minded, then you'll, you, you'll just be open to everything. The problem is, is that statement in and of itself is kind of shallow because you actually can't be open to everything because what that normally translates into is rejecting everything. And if you're rejecting everything, you're not actually being open-minded, you're being pretty close-minded. We have this mentality that what a lot of times people brand, they label it with the word open-mindedness. And just because something is called something doesn't mean it's that thing. The concept of open-mindedness a lot of times is actually a very close-mindedness mentality that is rejecting everything. G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy makes the very brilliant statement, the one who wills to reject nothing actually wills the rejection of will itself. When you say that you'll accept anything, you're not actually accepting anything. You're rejecting that anything at all has meaning. And I know there's a lot of language in that, and that can be really crazy to think about. But let me put this in a more practical sense. Children, I think we've all been around children. I know those of us who, who do pastoral ministry, we see this especially from the pulpit. Children need things to play with. They're going to play. I don't have kids. None of us here have kids. But I have observed a lot of children. Children need something to play with. If you took children to a field and threw them out in the field and said, play, you're going to get bored pretty quickly, especially if it's a field that has no sticks or no anything ever. You see, children need something to play with. If you give them a ball, they're going to have fun with it. If you give them a box, they're going to have fun with it. Um, kids, they need a playground. They need a swing. They need even, it may be something simple. I've seen kids playing with a candle in the church one day just because it was available to them. But you've got to have some framework to be working with. I make a lot of things with a 3D printer, and even today I've got a couple of Swatch watches on with some 3D printed accessories on them. Yes, they are ugliest as sin. Um, but if I took Amanda and Anthony and I said, I'm going to put you on a room. I've got these old hideous watches, and I need you to make me some watch bands for them. And I locked them in a room with nothing at all. Would you all be able to produce a watch band? No. No. But if you've got like a 3D printer in there, it's got the files on there, and you, all you got to do is click print, or maybe you're really good with CAD filing and you can sketch them up on the computer. You can do the 3D imaging. You could make them. Or say you've got some leather and you're good with doing leather work. You, you could make them. If you don't have anything to work with, you're just stuck in a void. 
And people, they need a framework in order to interact with the world. They need a moral framework. And people are hardwired to do this. In this new age where people are like, well, we can just reject Christianity, reject all the Judeo-Christian values which brought us here. We can have the effects of those values, but we don't need the, them being the origin of them. You really can't do that. It's like putting kids on a playground with no ball or anything. Um, it's, it's just going to be nothingness. You've got to have something to work with. And we'll get back to our list of questions. Anthony, what is question number two? What makes you feel like you can have the same morality without God, the most important ingredient to who we are? I kind of think we've covered this a yeah. little bit already. It's again, it's a breaking of cause and effect relationships. And again, and it's going to break down over time. And, and, and I think we see this in our own culture and our own world, and we see it really around the world and throughout, throughout history. So anytime the people of God or, or people in general have rejected their calling, what God has created them to be, um, eventually it's going to deteriorate. And, and God has to send someone in, whether it is a judge or a prophet um, or eventually his, his only begotten son, um, to call us back to, to, to that morality and that they are connected. Re and remember, the other thing is morality is not an abstract set of rules. It's not something God just was like, I'm bored. I think I'm going to give them 10 commandments for no other reason other than I like to create 10 rules. It's because God knows how we're designed and we need this structure. Um, not to tame in our, our wild craziness, but so that we can have life and have it abundantly. And so this pastor and, and, and the congregation she's leading are only walking slowly into more and more destruction and depravity. Again, not because they, they're... they're um, they're denying some kind of abstract theological thought, but they're denying the reality of the world we live in. Yeah, and to Mena's point, uh, I want to talk about creativity just a bit because I think it really demonstrates what Amanda's talking about. You've got to have something to work with, and it will fall apart because there's nothing underpinning holding all this together. If you take people and put them in a place where you're like a Harry Potter universe and you've got a magic wand or something like that, and you say, I want to have a suit of armor, and you just snap your fingers and it appears, you know, that's not actually being creative. If I took someone and put them in a kitchen for 30 minutes and I said, only using the resources in this kitchen, can you make a Roman piece of armor in 30 minutes? If somebody was able to do that, that would be amazingly creative because creativity isn't just making anything out of anything. It's making something using the limited resources you have around you. And to the Ten Commandments, it's not something which gives you a burden. It actually gives you the tools for having liberty. In the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments, you see this great scene. He picks up those Ten Commandments and says, there is no liberty without the law. For people who are at a entry level um, into the world of philosophy, you say, oh, but you're free. You can think or do anything. If you just open everything, won't you be able to accept everything? Well, the answer is no. You actually need a framework. True open-mindedness isn't this idea that you can accept everything because that's just not possible. True open-mindedness says, I'm going to consider all the evidence given to me. I will accept some of it, and I will reject some of it because things actually have value. Anthony? This next question is um, worded a little strangely, so please feel free to correct me. But who or what gives you the authority to change or alter our human history, our giving religious rights? All right. My answer to this is back to what I think the hypothesis of the underlying sin here is, is idolatry. 
I think we get to the point and modern luxuries have separated us from the fact that the world is brutal. The older I get, the more I realize we actually don't have a claim to just about anything. I love the opening statement in St. Patrick's Confession where he says, I am a sinner, the most uncultured and smallest of all the faithful. Many people hate me and think that I am utter trash. And I was carried off into slavery while I was a, a young man, and we all deserve this slavery. He kind of opens up with this idea that we have no claim in life. We deserve nothing. Everything we have above absolute nothingness is a blessing and gift from God. Um, it's a really good starting point because really we don't have a claim to many things. But our modern world, people think we do have authority to do things we don't do. We have authority in places we don't have authority. I hope that on Sunday I'm not preaching the gospel of J. Dylan Proctor. I hope I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no claim to the structure of the gospel because I am not the one who originated the gospel. Um, this lady herself, she should have no claim to that, but yet she thinks she has more authority over the, the church than does Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I think um, at the time it would be a good thing to kind of define idolatry and how, how we're using it. Often when we hear that phrase, and or if we look at the Ten Commandments, this is, you know, do not pray or worship um, to idols. This is talking about something more complex than simply having a structure uh, or a statue in front of you and bowing down to it or, or feeding it food. Um, it's really much bigger than that. And it, what it's saying when it says not to give into idolatry is never think that you can manipulate or create um, righteousness. You cannot even mm. give yourself life. Um, that is God and God's alone. Now, yes, you are called to work with God. You are called to participate in the life of God. But the originator of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith is, is God and God alone. And so, yeah, this is, I think, an interesting question to, to ask her as a minister of the gospel. How can you deny that gospel? And furthermore, as someone who has decided, an ordained minister, to submit herself under an authority of her denomination. Um, also, what gives that denomination the right to keep her in place? That's another question I think we should ask. Because at first, it seems like they were they had these meetings. They were going to, they rejected her. Also, it wasn't unanimous, which makes me a tad worried. It but, does make me worried. I noticed that too. Um, just so the audience is aware, in 2016, they had a committee come together to decide whether or not this needed to move to a heresy trial, and they voted 19 to four that were, she was. Not suitable to remain as a minister. Yeah, so there were four people who thought she was okay to remain as a minister. Now, eventually after this, all of the committee or all of the people involved decided not to move to heresy trial, which is also very troubling. Listen, there's always going to be random people that come up and, and say things that are against our faith. So her doing what she's doing really is not surprising to me. What or even all that frustrating, what is frustrating, what is truly frustrating to me is that a, a body of believers, more than just one person, a group of people who should be steeped in the tradition, the scripture, the reason and the experience of the people of God have decided this is okay to continue. And what authority do they think they have? How do they think that they are smarter than, than Peter or Paul or, or Martin Luther or, or John Wesley? Like who the bleep de bleep do they think they are? And to Amanda's point, I feel the same way. And I want us to be clear on this. I'm not surprised at what she's doing. I'm not endorsing it. But you always expect there to be a few crazies behind the pulpit. Um, you expect it's not a good thing, but, you know, people, they get involved in sex crimes. They do terrible things. You expect people to be depraved on, like, the individual scale. But when you have a denomination as a whole, 
saying, you know what, maybe it's not, maybe we don't need a heresy trial on this. That's what bothers me. And I think that's what you're saying too, Amanda. Yeah. Like, I expect there to be a few people who are going to, you know, I'm not, I don't know that I would say slip through the cracks, but you, you expect people to be depraved. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm saying. People who may supposed to be sanctified people, but are really not. That I'm not shocked by, but I am shocked by the denomination being all right with this. Anthony, what's the next question? Do you believe in the Big Bang Theory? If so, how do you come up with this realization? And um, depending on what you all say, uh, I may want to add uh, something myself. All right. Actually, I'm only going to have Anthony answer this. <laughs> and Anthony didn't know about this. And we are live. For the people who, who are watching this, we're not editing anything. We're live right now. It, it's Wednesday at like 1128. Though we will post this later. Uh 11-28 being the month of November. Not okay. the time. <laughs> it's 4.06 p.m. right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. But anyways, Anthony, what would your response be if someone brings up the Big Bang Theory? Because you had a really enlightening piece of information on this that I didn't know. Okay. So um, first I would start with the thought, the common thought of the scientific community at the time of the Big Bang Theory, which was that the universe was static and infinite. So the universe was not expanding as um, the scientific community is led to believe today by the evidence that it has. Hang on, Anthony. And Before you go too much further, where did the Big Bang Theory originate? Because that's the real shocker for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, yeah, I was going to get to that part, but um, I can go and skip to there. Um, Lead with that point because yeah. that's, the, that's the clincher <laughs> this, there. This is the most interesting part. The Big Bang Theory originates as the theory of the primeval atom and was proposed by Father Lemaitre who was an ordained priest, I believe, in Belgium. All right. Although he studied uh, at, univer at you know Ivy League universities around the world. I, I just want to point this out. People always put the, the Big Bang Theory being something which is antagonistic to the church. It was developed by a priest. I'm not, I'm not drawing any conclusions from that. Just do with that information whatever you want to. I will tell you this. Most of our last thousand years of the whole scholastic movement, the movement towards liberal art, liberal arts that you can be free as an individual by learning knowledge. People have lied to many of us saying that it's something which has been opposed to the church when realistically the church has been the drive behind a lot of it. Um, yep. And that was that was what I was going to point out to toward about the previous thought in the scientific community, which um, before, you know, static and infinite universe. And with the Big Bang Theory, we don't have, oh yeah, and eternal. So, you know, never beginning, never ending, not moving or expanding or contracting, and infinite. And so, um, with the Big Bang Theory, we have a beginning to the universe, we have a non-static universe, and we have a universe that may or may not be infinite. And these are all three things that contradicted the thought of the time. And more importantly, and interestingly enough, the Big Bang Theory is actually more of a slur that was used by the atheist scientists to make fun of the theory of the primeval atom. And, you know, commonly known today as the Big Bang Theory. Uh, something else that's really, really interesting is that Einstein, not believing in the explicit Christian God himself, he may have in the end become some sort of deist. But long story short, he refuted this claim so much that he changed a variable in one of his equations pertaining to the laws of the universe because he had to concede that Father Lemaitre's math was perfect. 
but he considered his physics to be atrocious, which are, this is a quote. And so this was so against what the scientific community thought that they were literally changing variables and equations for the laws of the universe. So this is really something that does not originate as an attack against God. And that's really all I would say about it. I'm not going to ask anyone to believe in the Big Bang Theory, but I would ask that we well, recognize Well, the, the takeaway from it is it didn't start as something that was opposed to God. It, yep. it started out of the church and a priest looking for, for answers, just doing the math. All right, well, anyways, um, next question, Anthony. Have you ever been told stories from your grandma or grandpa about your great-great-grandma and your great-great-grandpa and about how they came here or how they came to be without them, there will be no you. How they came to be without them, there will be no you. How do you put that together? How do you say there is no God? All right. That question gets really confusing, but basically they're saying you didn't give birth to yourself. That's sort of the train of thought here. You didn't give birth to yourself and... And what now gives you the authority to say that you you do get to decide on things which happened before you? Um, and I think that basically says enough there. Yeah, and I think we've kind of already answered that yeah. earlier. So it just, you can't. <laughs> All right. Um, sixth question, Anthony. How can you say you have morality? How can you say you have morality? You can have ethics. You can have justice. You can have quality if that's what you're looking for, how can you have any of the, these things without knowing who you are or where you came from? Again, this is the very idea. These people, people like this pastor, they're wanting the effects of the gospel without the gospel being the cause of them. And I, I just don't think it's possible. Amanda, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's much else to say about that. And I think this is what's interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this will progress and maybe it won't be in the news as much because it will get kind of lost. But I just, I don't see like, if you don't want Christianity, but you want community, then why not go to a community center? Why not go to a bar? Why not go to, you know, join your, your community's local sports scene or theater scene or, or whatever. Like there's a million other ways to do it. So what is attracting them to the church, but not to the gospel? And what do they think they can find? And also, if you have an ethics that says, do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, um, but not someone, but not a place where that originates, um, then why can you believe what you believe? And you say, well, it's just, it's just good things to do. But then I think then you're also left with, okay, if it's good things to do, then how do you get, when you get into the murky places, the gray areas, how do you figure out if there's not a source of hope and wisdom? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, number seven, Anthony, what's the, that question? The flock that you shepherd, how or what do you say to them when they are out of line, when there's a great need, when there is a great sorrow, a great loss, when they're lost and they need understanding and guidance? One of the things that comes to my mind, and I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for for pretty much all of my adult life, which I don't know what that says about our denomination. Um, definitely have grown a lot since I was many years younger. But I have sat with a lot of people as they've passed. And there's a particular look, and other people I'm sure have, have experienced this as well, where someone, they know that they're not going to live for a few more moments, 
and they they had this look where they want some sort of assurance. And it's weird because I've I've sat with people as they've passed before, before I was a pastor and even in situations where I'm not necessarily being the pastor in this moment. But as I have been a specifically a minister, people have looked at me and they want this sort of approval from the pastor that it's okay to die. They and not everyone does this, but there's been quite a few people I've been with that they they want this known this assurance that it is all real. And it's a hard thing to do as a pastor to be able to to sit in that moment and realize the duty that you have at this moment is to to provide them the assurance and do that in a stable and and reasonable manner. That is also not distracting from the gospel, but reminding people that we may not have a claim to me things in life, but we can't have assurance in our salvation with Jesus Christ. I don't know how in the world I would respond to that look, to that question that people have. And sometimes people aren't able to speak, but there's a look that you sometimes get from, from folks. I don't know how I could respond to that if I did not believe in assurance. If I did not believe that there actually was salvation in Jesus Christ, I don't know how I would handle that. Yeah, I, I don't I don't even know. And, and I've been debating about sharing a thought I have for a while. I don't, and I want to say this with this caveat. I'm not, we are judging her. We, we, we have a rubric. We have a ruler. It's called scripture. We have measured her up against it. She has been found wanting. But I, I will not go so far as to condemn her. There is always place and room for repentance. However, it's interesting in one of the gospels, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of the day. And he says, look at yourselves. You make worse sinners out of the people you call to the gospel um, because of all these unreasonable rules you put on. And basically what he's saying is you've fallen into idolatry yourself. And so I've contaminated the, the gospel of who God is, that you are creating more sinners than you are actually saving people. It is better for you for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you thrown into the depths of the ocean. And that's harsh language coming from Jesus, okay? But I think that's something we need to hear in this. This is not just somebody. This is a minister of the gospel, a pastor, a shepherd, someone who's supposed to be that means of grace to her people. And she's leading them astray where they have no hope. They have no assurance. They have no true peace or love or joy. I don't know what to say to this woman other than you better pray to God that you have time for not only repentance for yourself, but that you can help this congregation that you have so detrimentally hurt. And I think when you say condemnation, you're not saying that she should stay in her position. I think what you're saying is this is not, we're not going to have a witch trial and, and chop someone's head off, but there does need to be actual actions taken. Yes, she needs to be removed from her position. Yeah. In my, in, well, I'm not going to just say in my opinion. I think uh, uh, Christian tradition would stand with me on this one. But what I'm saying is that that doesn't, even though she needs to be removed, there's still a place for her to find repentance. Now, maybe yeah. she never needs to be a pastor again, but she can definitely rejoin the community of faith. So I'm, when I say there's not condemnation, that's what I'm saying. There is room. There's always room for repentance and for her to come back to the table. But that can only happen if she first confesses that there is a table that, need, that she can come to. And you can't come to a table unless you proclaim a crucified and resurrected Lord, which you cannot confirm if you deny the Trinity. Yeah. So, yes. Um, interesting things. We didn't have all of her. There were some articles that were out that have some quotations from her. And she, she has said that she doesn't believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She spells out the Trinity and rejects them all. 
after the conversation I had on Chris Ford's podcast, the Gen Y Conservative, someone asked me, they said, but did she reject the, the devil? I don't have an answer to that. I don't know if she rejects Satan or not, but it wasn't in the statements or any of the quotations that I read, um, which is just interesting food for thought. Um, you can draw your own conclusions there. But to Amanda's point, there is a healthy understanding of what excommunication is, and that is people within the church who it's not sending them away to be have their head chopped off and never be seen or heard from again, but it's saying we have a standard. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of whoever is behind the pulpit at that given time. There's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We did not author the gospel of Jesus Christ. We did not perfect it. We are simply called to be ministers of it. Now, that's a very different thing than being called to be an author of it. That's why I think one of the heart central sins in this is idolatry because this lady has clearly put herself in the place where she does get to be the new author of it. She gets to be the author and the editor of it. Um, hmm. But yes, Anthony, let's go ahead and skip down to um, this final statement. and We'll wrap this conversation up. Uh would you read just the the first sentence or the first phrase, I guess you could say, out of the, the final statement? Yep, that... I've got it. Um, I will pray for you, for you to remember you were appointed by God to be a mouthpiece of good news. I prayed for you that you have a realization and understanding and beg for forgiveness, not just to God, our Lord and Savior, but to all the people and the lives that you have touched that has looked to you for guidance and understanding. And I think that's a good response to this, because again, you've got to balance justice and mercy. We live in a world where I think, in, especially in this denomination, they, they don't really understand the call for, for justice. Something needs to be done here. It's not just to have a, a pastor that's editing out God and in the pulpit. But on top of that, um, I'll kind of close with this. I'm upset with what she's done, but I think I'm more upset with the denomination. I, I think if there's any place where people really need to to look for a sign of where our culture's at as a whole, it's that the denomination itself is allowing this to happen. And though in my opinion, those people need to be out too. Um, obviously Jesus Christ is not the head of this church. If it were, the the reverend who is sort of one of the the top leaders there, I forget his name. Um Reverend Richard Bott, um, he's now currently heading the United Church in Canada, which, of course, the head of the church is supposed to be Jesus Christ. I think this article, when it says this guy is the head of that church, they must be right. Because if Jesus Christ was the head of this, then you would have pastors behind the pulpit who believed in Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think those people need to be out. Yeah. And I think this is a very compassionate statement and something um, I was trying to communicate earlier as well. It's just th there is room for compassion. There's room for grace. There's even room for inclusivity. And I know that's a word that's tainted by a lot of different things. And we've had long, long conversations about it. There is room for people to come and experience God's grace. But that grace calls for transformation. And we need both statements. We need grace. We need transformation. And for anyone to proclaim only one of those things, they are a heretic. So maybe there's not a need for a heresy trial because we already know the result. Um, and it is sad that a whole denomination has allowed this to happen. Absolutely. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you for joining us. Again, this is Kingdom of the Logos, and have a blessed day.